art, this is an amazing subject. It, it comes from different people and it contributes to a cultural identity in a way which can question ourselves or give you another way of looking at the world. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This episode is the fourth in an ongoing series called The Long Run, where I speak with artists who've had careers spanning 60 years. And this episode is with Robert Owen. Based in Melbourne, Robert has led an incredible life of creating, working across painting, sculpture, photography, installation and public art. While his works are based in geometry and abstraction, they quite stunningly bring together a range of references from philosophy, poetry, literature, art history, mathematics, and science. Our conversation focuses a lot on Robert's early practice and his ideas on art, and you really get a sense of the interconnected ways in which Robert thinks. I start with asking a question about his love of a certain shade of blue and how that came about, and his answer threads together his childhood, the years he spent in the 1960s on the Greek island of Hydra with well-known creatives like Leonard Cohen, his love of jazz music, and that feeling of being overwhelmed by art. And from here we discuss his upbringing in Wagga Wagga, the spiritual elements of abstraction, and his reflections on an art practice of 60 years. And before we get started, a very big thank you to our sponsor for this series, Leonard Joel Auctioneers and Valuers, based in Melbourne and Sydney. I'd like to start by talking about colour because it's such a foundational part of your work and particularly the colour blue. And there's a really interesting story about when you were overseas and you encountered a certain shade of blue. I was wondering if you could tell me that story. Yes, Giotto's paintings in the Scavoni Chapel. I guess it was, it, I've often thought about it in different kinds of ways and not thought about it at all until something else happened and connected triggered it but it triggered a lot of things prior to that uh, going back to my childhood but it was a kind of an excess of doing a, a tour an art tour of uh, Italy from Rome so but by the time I we I got to the north of Italy I mean it was such a, an extraordinary experience and an overload I guess we once saw all these I'd left school at 14, had no history of, of art or anything, and I was learning this as I was going and exper- through experience, you know. So most of those, all the spirit, I guess those experiences for me are about, were about that, the bodily experiences you have received through the body, I guess. Anyway, we got to uh, Venice, and in those days, the first time in Venice, and it was at the Venice Guggenheim's house, and it wasn't a big place it is now, it was a house, and she was there. I didn't know it was who she was and what have you, but was went to see this this exhibition. But somebody there said, oh, have you, uh, have you seen Giotto's Chapel in Padua? And I said, no. And she said, it's only 20 minutes away or half hour on the train. And I thought, oh, I'll go. But anyway, the experience was quite stunning. So I guess... At the beginning, your question, in a sense, was this sense of overload, I guess, of that experience and getting to this wonderful chapel and seeing the, uh, I think there's about 36 or 37 paintings of the journey of Christ, uh, I think. But anyway, uh, surrounding uh, surrounding all those paintings and in the paintings themselves was this beautiful blue, extraordinary blue. I think the sensation I had was a combination I think a combination of the, the the overload, 
physical excitement and wonder and curiosity and all those things about the experience of Venice and the experience of Italy itself and seeing that, that, that Michelangelo's David and all the other pieces along the way. So there's a kind of accumulation, I guess, that experience is like an excitement thinking a bit arrogantly, I think I said, uh, oh, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and of course, I had this, this kind of voice said, some other dimension sort of alerted me to the fact that, no, that's not, not what you need to do. You need to record what is happening to you now or how you're feeling now, or how you're thinking now. It's a kind of an overload excitement area where there's an expansion of consciousness at some point. Like This is reflective thinking, of course. At the time, it was just quite exciting because it was a total shift in, 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 in where one was from that the experience where I was in, it sent me back to my childhood, it sent me through all sorts of other experiences uh, in the past because this, uh, the, the journey itself became this, and, and the, per, uh, the years living on, well, living on this Greek island uh, for a little while become a place of reflection. So along with all this new information that was coming in, there was a reflection of this place I came from in Australia and seeing this world that that uh, you know we'd barely heard about or barely took much notice of because we're so loaded into sort of going for a swim, you know, the surf and all the, the local situations. And dominant thing at the time was uh, the colonised place. You know, at your age, we'd stand in the movie house for God Save the Queen before any play, anybody played a movie. But all the movies you'd see would be American right. movies, you see. So it, it, was a bit, it was really a confused part and not... Most of it very nice because I would, when I went to Sydney from Wagga, the idea of getting involved in sort of beat generation poetry, which is all American, you know, out of San Francisco and places, New York, and jazz music, it was so new and so different to what I'd experienced in, in Wagga and so on. So it's this, it's kind of unpacking those things, uh, although at that time you weren't unpacking them, you were experiencing them. You were just going through this life of experiencing the expectation that's how it was and in the art world then in uh, in sydney where where i went to the art school people were saying you have to go overseas if you want to be an artist mm. did you think that was true at uh, that time well at the time i think it was because many they've been doing it since you know 1900 <laughs> yeah uh and mainly women that were going to uh, to study art in in europe and london uh that also brought back information particularly by the time it came back in much later for the abstractionists that began in, in Sydney. Anyway, that, that led away from the question you asked about colour. So it was a, so it's primarily this bodily situation um, that gives you some other insight in, into one's self or one's search at the time or one's understanding of oneself at that particular time. So there are moments of sort of getting it, you know, it's very difficult to explain to explain them in language as a sense. And uh, it took me, it did take me right all the way back to Wagga and going bush and things like that. I think you learn, as children, you're all pretty much in this state anyway. And I think we learn to unlearn that, that state. We need management, we need to be able to survive, we need to be able to yeah, uh, work together as groups and families groups and so on. So we unlearn certain kinds of experiences I think all children have. It was really interesting to me. There was a recent interview where you you talked about seeing that blue at the chapel, and 
you said that you it actually affirmed for you that you should be an artist. Yes, yeah, yes, that's uh, that's true. And I think that was the final one I needed. But before that, there were different stages that been doing this from you know I, I had blue ribbons of prizes from the Showtime in, in, in Wagga Showtime for putting little drawings and paintings into the Wagga Show. It's, it's like the, the country women used to make cakes and you'd have all these prizes for cakes. <laughs> they had prizes for artworks for whoever wanted to put them in there. Yeah. And you'd see these wonderful paintings by women that, you know, had been painting flowers. And, and just to clarify, that was in your youth in Wagga Wagga where you were painting more naturalist and landscape-based works. Yes, in Wagga was doing uh, plein air painting and things going out Saturday afternoons and Sundays and so on. Was, my mother got me a position uh, at being part of the Wagga Art Society, that a small group of people that were yeah. getting together and painting, going out plein air painting or painting. Really, they all helped each other and sometimes they would get people in for a weekend. Different artists would come down from, up from America on a train. So they were kind of interesting. They'd come and assess, so-called assess your work and and uh, which I had enough experience about, but anyway, we, we should stay on up. We should stay on the money here, shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's really interesting to me that you had that upbringing where you were, you know, painting out in the landscape and trying to capture the landscape, but then your practice really kind of disavowed that entire field. Uh, yes, I think. Well, I think there's an evolutionary process that goes on. Uh, that's. I think it was that thing of wanting to know and so when you're out this observational analysis all the time you're always looking you're always seeing you're always trying to understand how this works how that works you see how light works on a tree and how the tree changes it in different times you go there you know springtime and it's very important and when I was at RMIT it was the major thing that I set up in terms of rewriting the course for sculpture was to do the whole thing of hands-on observation analysis, looking, doing, making, seeing. And when you were younger, I understand that you were also left-handed and that had quite significant consequences for you growing up. I was left-handed and I kept, I, I resisted being changed. There was a kind of very formalist enterprise of changing my right left-handedness to my right hand. And in those days, you had pens and inks, you had a pen like a a quill and you'd spill the ink everywhere and so on supposedly but anyway there was a some kind of rule in this school went to schools in Wagga that you, you had to learn to do the other thing but I kind of re resisted it uh, enormously and caused a lot of trouble for myself and uh, my family and everybody but I but my mother was very uh, enterprising she used to give me botany books for school so on one page was blank and the other page had lines on it so to try and write on and the other one I could draw on and she'd talk to teachers and it was an endless problem anyway I kind of survived that but a lot of the a lot of that conditioning and I think the resistance of, of that conditioning led me to sort of use other ways of very carefully watching seeing the world like observational analysis was very important very early on and then at some time in the 1950s you made the decision to leave Wagga and go to Sydney and study art well, again, I had no idea of going to art school and I went to Sydney. I, I was invited to do a job in Sydney and I, because I was working since I was 15. I think I was in national service in the army, the last national service, I think, of the period. It was after the Korean War. But I had gone through those things from 15. I went and got myself a job as, you know, as a window dresser against my father's will because he got me a job in uh, a timber mill. 
and it was just shocking. I mean, the noise was shocking. That's probably why I got hearing aids now because of the the noise of these machines back there then, and uh, I, I just couldn't stand it. And so I, for some reason, I went and got a window dressing job. I liked looking in windows, you know, the fantasy world. I had. <laughs> <laughs> and so being a window dresser, obviously colour would have been very important and it became very important to your practice as an artist. Is there, has it been difficult throughout your career to get that certain shade of blue that you always have been seeking? Now, the ultramarine blue I found out in the, the chapel was a lapis lazuli, which was then I had to find out what that was. So they're not things I'd learned at school. So I had to then find out what these experiences I was having, you know, what was that? What? Why was that different to the painting I saw over there? An interesting thing I found about that ultramarine blue, it has a vibration, I forget the number, it has a vibration somewhere between black and white. So it was really interesting, and I think this might affect people so much when they see this this blue because it's uh, and there are various stages of the blue. It, it comes into being and it goes out of into the next color. So it comes in from the green yellow end and it goes out at the blue, at the red ends or the blue, the purpley blues. And of course, these days it's not the pure ultramarine blue that it was in those days because that was made from lapis lazuli stone from Afghanistan and the Himalaya areas. And it was traded to Venice, traded traded to Europe through Venice as this kind of sacred blue that became the blue of the, you know, it was very important in the religious thing. There's a paler version of it, which became the, the, the clothing of Mary Magdalene and the women saints and things. Yeah, and that's a really interesting history. But to change track just a little bit, I'm curious to know, was there a moment when you became interested or really knew about abstract art? When I was in Sydney, there were some friends around the corner. I'd uh, met their son. We used to go swimming before going to work. And uh, they said, well, my mum and dad are artists and, and, you know, we should get together and see what you think. And I'm sort of coming home from work and I'm painting your pictures or making, carving something or what have you. So uh, these people around the corner were Frank and Irene Broadhurst. And Irene Broadhurst was working at the, uh, the National Art School in Sydney and I was working as a window dresser in a man's world shop called the Man's World. <laughs> <laughs> in the Man's World, it was a man's world. Oh, <laughs> shop in the Man's World. <laughs> and uh, anyway, Frank and Bill well, Frank had brought us was always in his studio down the back. He'd say hi and what have you, and we'd have coffee Sunday mornings or a cup of tea or something. And it was fascinating to me because the house was a. It was a bohemian house. <laughs> I had no idea of these things. But I was fascinated by it. You know, art was everywhere and bits and pieces of this, that and the other. But Frank, uh, um, he was an illustrator. But uh, anyway, Irene used to work daytime up at the art, the art school. And she would look at what I was doing and make comments and things. Oh, no, you should be doing that. But I was getting a bit stuck and I started carving in stone because a stone up in Sydney was sandstone pick up around the beaches and easy to carve and things and wood I was carving wooden thing and she said look you should go to art school and uh, I said oh should I <laughs> what I did because I, was, I, I, I went out I think I painted a couple of paintings of streets around Sydney and it was wasn't like painting the bush and nature so I didn't know where to go next so it was drawing and, and carving anyway she said you should go to art school and because uh, you've got talent blah blah so I finally got to go and have a look at where it was. It was in the city. I didn't know much about the city except dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I used to go to the jazz club in Sydney because uh, um, that was a bit later on, but I used to be interested in dancing at the in the surf clubs along the coast. Uh, anyway, went to speak to this man, Lyndon Dadgewell, and he was very interested in telling me what, and I knew nothing about old Bauhaus. He'd just received a scholarship, a Fulbright scholarship, I think, to go to, to America and investigate art schools and things and come back with the information and so on. So he did that, but, but he encouraged me to, I thought, oh, I like this, but I was going to go and do painting, but I liked what he had to say and I thought, oh, that's the future, I'll go and do that. So I took, in 57, I took a, a night course in, in, in life modelling and that was the start of it. And in 58, I signed up for a night course in, uh, you know, a whole course at night time in 1958 until 1962. And that was, that was fantastic. But anyway, that was the beginning of this. I was going to ask, like spending, because you spent those four years in the 60s in Greece, and then you spent another few years working under like, quite famous British constructionists. Was it quite jarring when you came back to Australia? It was, it was in that sense, because I felt there was no history of that constructivist work in a sense, but there, there was. But I mean, it, I saw it before I went away a little bit, because it, it, as I was getting through art school by the time it got to 62 and things I was going around to galleries the art gallery in New South Wales I was always in there backwards and forwards there was a commercial gallery started and of course that was another introduction to you know commercial galleries and things rather than public galleries where you can go and see art I forget the name of the gallery but a group of Sydney artists called the Sydney Nine and they were mostly European primarily post-war Leonard Hessing and uh, Bob Hughes was part of it as well. He, he's Colin Lansley and a number of other people that were all there. So I started to know something of the Bob Robert Clipple, one wonderful man I, I met in '62, beginning of '63 actually. He'd come back from New York, and he was with Clem Meadmore, brought him to a show I was having to sell all my work so I can get on the boat to go to, <laughs> to, go to Greece. And uh, Clem Meadmore's work I liked, he, but he was from Melbourne. I didn't know much about Melbourne art at all. It was a different city. Kind of on subject, but something that interests me is with sort of constructivist works and, and monochromes, so in so much through art history, I think they've really been valued for their formal qualities. Mm-hmm. But it seems like from the beginning you kind of recognised their spiritual spiritual qualities as much as the formal. Well, the um, I think, I, of course, when it got to Sydney, it became more noticeable in relationship to um, certainly books were coming through and it, when I went to the art school, the first book that I bought was Norm Garbo's book and that was really like an engineer's book. I couldn't understand it, but the pictures, I was into the pictures. Right. <laughs> I was always into the pictures. You know? But the picture book was fascinating because here I'm going to this art course now, I bet I'd come to know something about this. But the interesting thing was it was around Sydney. It was in a bookshop in Sydney. I, I had to pay it off and spent two or three months, small change, you know, five shillings a, a month or a week or something. But when I got it, I was fascinated by, first of all, I was fascinated by the structures and the pictures of the book of the, in the book. And then I tried to to read it over time. It took a long time and I didn't, I, I stopped reading it because I couldn't understand it. I asked questions at, at school uh, occasionally because you working, doing a course at night time, you don't have much time to be sitting around asking questions and who is this and who is that. The interesting thing was, was a pair of glasses in the back of the book and you had th- that showed you 3D models of his work. That's the thing that really got me. 
But it's really curious because you can see these two pictures. So that took a while to sort of work through. The thing that did affect me in there was the his statement about making art. That's the one I really understood first, I think. The histories and things that were going on, I knew nothing of the different people in those histories. We didn't have history that at that time. It was all a practical course. There was a library there, but if you... I came over from Manly, and so after work, so by the time I got there, it was straight into classes, and I, we'd finish at nine, and the, the library would close at nine as well. So my my education was walking down to the through the city, past the El Rocco and listen to some jazz and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> and they made coffee there, which was rare. No coffee made in Manly in those days, but there you could get coffee and listen to jazz. And then I'd spend some time there and walk down through the city of where this is going to be going, this, this image, uh, to catch the last ferry home. Um, so there wasn't... That history was something I had to try and figure out for myself during those periods, uh, discussions with others at weekend or going to art shows and listening to everybody talk, you know, you thought, oh, that's what it's about. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, and going to the art gallery, just, you know, they didn't have to talk, people who spoke about things, but you went to see, you looked a lot. You, then I started looking at all the sculptures that were there as well. And I could see the relationship to some sculptures there that were like Norm Garbo and you start to see, oh, this is, um, who were they? I'm trying to think who, that, those images. But uh, 50, end of 58, early 59, uh, Lyndon Daswood came back from America, very excited about really. And then he introduced the Bauhaus teaching to the whole school. He said, this was, you know, because it was a Bauhaus course. And I said, oh, I'd been painting before I came to do this and all those things. So, so but this Bauhaus idea was it was about creativity. It wasn't about being a, a painter or a sculptor or a, it was about being an artist. Now, that, that you could do whatever you want. I have one final question. And I'm interested to know when you've had a career of 60 years, are the inquiries and the things that you're sort of searching for or investigating in your art, are they still the same as what they were at the beginning? Well, I, I think so, but they're, very, they're different. They're, they're, they're very different. I think I, they're certainly the same in, in, in some ways. It's, I, I think, I, I guess the journey has, we've all, got this, we've all got a journey in some way. Now we either apply ourselves to something in life and we follow the journey. Uh, I think there's an aspect of, of, of art that actually allows you to find out who you are and whether that's a poet or a writer or, you know, and I think through writing or being able to tell stories about something or a scientist. It's something, it's so, there's a point in which, you know, the left side or the right side takes over and you, you can, can, creativity is very important for scientists. They have to really have that, that ability to investigate outside themselves and so on. But I think, uh, so I, I do think that the things are the same. In terms of your practice, though, what if if for the last sixty years those investigations have like fundamentally been the same? What do you think those investigations have been? Well, they're tr- they're in, in some ways they're trying to uh, show. They're trying to uh, reflect rather than through a written language idea, a visual manifestation of this notion of, of, of 
oneness, if you like, now. We might interpret it as beauty or we might interpret it as something. There's a wonderful comment that Grayson Perry, wonderful guy, and there's a wonderful book he's written and and somebody mentioned to him, he says, you know what, nobody wants to talk about the spiritual. Don't go there. And uh, somebody told him and said, art is the spiritual in drag. Just don't talk about it. <laughs> you see, there's amazing sort of <laughs> things out there. Ah, this is amazing subject. It, it comes from different people and it contributes to a cultural identity in a way which can question ourselves or give you another way of looking at the world. So the, the, the in, in the exhibition, that back wall with the window is one of the is one of the paintings of Giotto. The wall around it is the blue wall from Giotto's chapel, if you like. So there's another metaphor. And then there's in the, we're in Southeast Asia, so there's the Buddhas. But the Buddhas are made from uh, beeswax. The bees made the material f- for those Buddha heads. And they're looking at a, a salt-covered head of a, a, a ram. Uh, and then so... Within that, we've got all sorts of metaphors. We could actually Google every one of those words and stack them up to see what might be in this uh, movie. So from my saying, well, let's do a a blue wall. We're we're in Giotto's Chapel again, but this is the painting we've got to deal with today. It's not the religious painting on the wall that we looked at, at the, the life of Christ. This is the life of ourselves today, and it's nature out there that we have to come to understand in a way that's, um, you know, as spiritual as religion is. We have to be very mindful of of all the attributes of, of, of nature in that sense. And that was Robert Owen for this fourth episode of The Long Run. Stay tuned for two more episodes to be released shortly, and you can also listen back to previous episodes with Gareth Sansom, Wendy Stavrianos, and John Walsley. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify or otherwise listen at Art Guide online where you can keep up to date with art-related features and interviews from across the country.